that, that was it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> oh, that was one of my kids. Hey, Sadie. Good morning, my love. Yeah, so uh, we're looking at Psalm 63 today. So if you've got a paper copy of the Bible, like the olden days, you can go ahead and open that up. If you use your phone, don't be looking at Twitter, uh, but you can open up your phone there too. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Daniel. Uh, I belong to Exchange for the last two years. If you want to know how long I belong to Exchange, uh, go find our youngest kid, and it's been that long. So she was like days old the first time we visited Exchange, uh, and I am thrilled that this is the home where she's growing up. So again, if we haven't met, I'm Daniel. I've been married to Christiane for 14 years, uh, coming up on the 14th. That's the grace of God. And if you add the four years we were dating, this is the year where I have been with Christiane more of my life than I was without her. And I have been counting down to that moment. So uh, I love Christiane. We got four kiddos. Uh, You've seen them. They're the ones that you have to say, stop running uh, at all times too. So Sam is nine, Selah and Story are both seven, uh, and Sophie just turned two. Um, also, since January, I've had the joy of being the student ministry leader here at Exchange. That's more enthusiasm than I deserve, but thank you. Uh, and it is, it's like a real privilege to get to spend time with the middle and high schoolers here every week, um, opening up the Bible, looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the context of the craziness of being in middle or high school in 2023. Um, just so you guys know who aren't a part of that, there's, there's great reason for hope. Don't freak out. It's going to be okay because Jesus is still king and he's capturing the hearts of middle and high schoolers now uh, who one day will pick out a good nursing home for you. <laughs> Thank you for being our family. Thank you for welcoming us Moors in a couple of years ago and, and grafting us into whatever good uh, fruit tree God is growing here at Exchange. Um, also, I know you guys, so I'm going to stick with the agricultural metaphors all day, Okay. <laughs> I'm excited to get to open up Psalm 63 and to talk about um, what it means to desperately need the right thing and for God to provide that, but I need lots of help. Um, So will you guys pray with me? Jesus, it's a joy to get to open up the Bible um, and to do my best to say, this is what God says. Um, But Lord, you know my heart better than anybody because your spirit rides around in there all the time, uh, you see all the highs and lows and you know just how weak I can be. And so Lord, for the next half hour or so, I ask that you by your grace um, would speak to your people, that the words wouldn't be clever things that I thought up, um, but they would be things that align with your heart as revealed here in Psalm 63. And God, wherever the people in this room are on their journey with you, whether their allegiance belongs to you wholeheartedly or whether they're on the fence or whether they're a hater. Lord, I pray that today we would catch a glimpse of what you're really like. Because if we could see what you were really like, then, then our hearts would, would have no choice but to um, give you everything. Lord, I want to give you everything. Thank you for this chance. You're the best and we love you. Amen. All right, family, let's take a ride. This is Psalm chapter 63, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So when we think about God's word today, we got to take a step back and admit, first of all, that what we're reading here is a work of art. It's a work of poetry. Uh, and like I'm so apt to say over and over again, God is gracious in that he didn't give us a list of bullet points of what he is like and what we're like and how to live. Instead, he's given us the gift of the Bible that is mostly just a story, a story of what God did in the world and in his people. And interspersed into that story are things that reflect the way life really is. And one of the things that life really is, is it's a place for artists to express themselves. And so what we have here isn't a list of what God is like and what we're like. Instead, we have a song, which is awesome because songs get stuck in your head. Songs become something that goes from your mind deep down into your heart, down to your guts, and it can resonate with your life. So when we encounter this song, we have to be honest with the fact that the genre we're reading demands that we read it differently than if we were trying to put together Ikea furniture or reading the newspaper. So I want you to see the first thing here is that we're dropped into a story of desperation, one where the author is in the wilderness and is having a, a lot of problems. Dude's got trouble. And I relate to that in the smallest of ways because David says that he's looking for God like he's looking for water. And uh, my small group knows this well. When I have to, to look for things, I get instantly sweaty. I get really stressed out. My body shuts down and I fight, flight, freeze. It's, it's so bad that like even playing like guess who with my kids like stresses me out because I don't like to, to not know or to be looking for things. Even if the thing I'm looking for is somebody wearing glasses with a mustache. Uh, it, it's, I don't put together puzzles. If you give me a puzzle, it will be in a box until the end of time, unless somebody else in my family gets a hold of it. I get really stressed out and I just freeze. Uh, for some reason, I'm 35 and I've had this anxiety since I was a little kid. I just haven't gotten over it yet. And so it probably doesn't come as a big surprise that a few days after I got married, I looked down at my left hand and my wedding ring was gone. Yeah, that's what happens when you get married on Friday and leave for your honeymoon on, Saturday, on Sunday, Monday. Woo. Get married on Friday, leave on Monday, and you got time to like wash the dishes and stuff in your own house. Uh, you lose stuff. And despite my like commitment to never looking for things, I was prepared to take our tiny little... 700 square foot shack apart board by board to find this wedding ring. I would, I would have done anything. And so after the sweat, after the paralysis, onto the search, I started to get desperate. I started to wonder, like, have I, have I really just lost something that's this important to me uh, and that cost way more money than it should have, but I spent, is this ever going to come back around? By the way, it came off in a paper towel when I was washing my hands. It was in the trash can in the kitchen. We eventually found it. Uh, I don't want you guys to worry about that, okay? But what I need you to see is that in that moment, I was prepared to look through every trash bag on planet Earth 
to find that wedding ring that was important to me, that everybody would know that I belonged to Christiane and she belonged to me. That days before I had committed my life in covenant to somebody else, my reason why overcame my paralysis of hunting for stuff. And it took a really deep why. Psalm 63 is about finding a really deep why. Why? In a season of miserable dryness, when the author can't decide if his throat or his soul is more desperately parched, he has this deep well of hope to draw on that keeps him pressing on in endurance. And so family, we need this psalm today. You, you need this psalm today. And I desperately need this psalm today because there are a million reasons to throw in the towel on your commitment to following Jesus your whole life. A million reasons to just give up or go crazy. But all we need is one to hang on. So let's take this ride. Let's find this one reason to hang on, to not go crazy or give up today. And it's this. Here's your big idea for the day. Because God has pulled through for us in the past, looking back, and because God has promised us a joy-filled, joy-saturated, 100%, always and forever joy future, we can endure any circumstance in the present. So here's the first thing you can see is, is that because this is true, when we look back and we look forward, we find a reason to endure. We can be really honest about our moment. The first verse like sums this up really well. The picture opens up on a desert. And this ain't like a nature park. This is one of the places where if you don't know where the water is, you might not survive long enough to chance upon it. The title of the psalm says this is a psalm of David from when he was in the wilderness. And David, for some reason, is hunting for God like a dying man hunts for water. Verse 1, God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. This isn't playing around. This isn't halfway. My soul, the thing that makes me, me, all of me, thirsts for you. My flesh, even my body, faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Family, maybe you've experienced it, but there's a difference between I'm thirsty and I might die if I don't find water soon. My kids experience that on every car ride that lasts more than 10 minutes. But there's a big difference. We know from the title that this is a wilderness psalm. We know that this isn't, again, like a cute park. This is trouble. This is a wasteland. But it's in that moment where David the artist, and isn't it just like an artist to do this? David the artist expresses something really unexpected. He says, I'm in a desert, and if I don't find water, I'm not going to make it. I'm in a desert, and if I don't find God, I'm done. He says, if I don't find water soon, I might die. But if I don't find my God, I'm certain that this is it. If I had all the provisions in the world, but I didn't have my God, I'm still as good as dead. And when you just hear that, that sounds a little crazy. Like, bro, you need water. You, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's a physical need that if it isn't met, you'll die. Why are you connecting this to something else? It sounds crazy until you find out for yourself until you find out for yourself that this is true. Because you can have all the water there is, but if you don't have him, you still have nothing. You can have all the food you need, but if you don't have him, you're still gonna be empty. He looks through the haze of what's happening in the moment to what's real and truly there. But then it gets worse. This gets worse. Not only is nature working against David, but he has actual enemies that want him unalived. 
Just like one of Shakespeare's great sonnets that starts with those like three groups of four lines where you get into the rhythm of the poem and you see what Shakespeare's doing and then he drops a bomb on you with that little two-line couplet at the end. Half the people in the room just got really stoked and the other half got really bored. <laughs> but just like that, where you have like a flow of a poem and then this like jarring end, verses nine through 11 come in as this tag. It's really important. But he stops and says, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. The traps they're setting for me are going to turn on them, but there are definitely traps set. They'll be given over to the power of the sword, the power of the sword they're trying to wield on him. There'll be a portion for jackals, carrion, but the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult. The mouths of liars will be stopped. So here's how the Psalms work. They drop us right into a scene with very little explanation and almost no context and say, deal with it. <laughs> We know that David's in a wasteland trying to survive. We know there are people who want him dead. And we know that in the midst of that present moment, his priority somehow, for some reason, is to find the real and living God. Let's take a minute to marvel because this is the exact same thing that Jesus demonstrated for us in his own life in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 tells the story of right after Jesus' baptism when his official public ministry to the world is getting started. The first thing he does isn't gather a crowd. It's that he's led by God's spirit out into the wilderness and he spends 40 days eating and drinking nothing. Nothing. And it's at that moment where the enemy comes to him and says, hey, aren't you really the son of God? If you are, then you could just like make these breads into st stones into bread. I got it backwards. You could make these stones into bread. The hunger that you're feeling doesn't have to continue. It could end right now. And Jesus doesn't quote this psalm, but he echoes its sentiment when he says, hey, don't tempt me with that because people don't live just by filling their bellies and making sure their cells have enough of whatever nutrients they need to survive. Humans survive on every word that comes from God's mouth. Even Jesus in his moment of hunger and thirst, realized the same thing that King David did, that if he had the real and living God, he had what he needed. So family, if we were to drop into the present scene of the story of your life, think about this. Would we find you desperate for the presence of the real and living God? Because here's the thing. We may be at a great disadvantage in 2023 to seeing this clearly. This morning, I woke up, and like every morning, I went to the fridge, and I filled up my water bottle with water and ice, both of which had been run through extra filters after the government filtered it for me. I just got water. I didn't even think about it. I turned on a coffee pot, and water heated up to a perfect 205 degrees and made coffee for me. That's been the story of my whole life. I'm 35. I've always had access to clean water and plenty of food. I haven't been in a place where it's like, okay, if I don't find drinkable water soon, this is the end. But here's the truth. It's possible to go your whole life starving for the thing that really matters and never even know it. David may have been an advantage to us because he was able to connect his real-life circumstance to what was going on under the surface. And we have to do the work to say, in 2023 America, how is my soul like David's? Because it's true. 
It's true. You can have all the clean water and bojangles you want, but if you don't have the real and living God, you're not going to make it. The here and now, <laughs> some of you don't have that problem. Some of you are like, yes, this is desperate times. The here and now can be a really tough spot. So how does David orient himself in that moment so he doesn't go crazy and he doesn't give up? Verse two, he looks back to see how God has satisfied his deepest needs in the past. That's the second thing I want you to see is that we, we can't forget the past. We shouldn't forget it. Guys, we instinctively know that there's a power in the story of the past. We all have this like flash drive in our brains. It's made up of core memories that help us to interpret and experience and navigate our present situation now. And it's time to tell on myself. <laughs> uh, guys, when, when I get angry, here's how I'm shaped by the past. When I get angry, which doesn't happen a lot, much like searching for things, it makes me tired. But when I get angry and I fuss, I, do, I, I clench my teeth. I talk with my teeth gritted. And I don't really yell, but I don't open my mouth. I just fuss through gritted teeth when I get really frustrated. And the reason I do this is because when I was a little boy, my dad fussed at me through gritted teeth without opening his mouth. Now, I was a frustrating kid. He was not a bad dad. He's the man. I still want to be like him when I grow up. When he really got going, the teeth would he would just talk like this. You know why my dad did it? He did it because his dad did it in the 60s, in the 70s. His dad would fuss at him through gritted teeth. And then, uh, much later in life, I found out why my granddad did it. And it's because when he was like 20, he had all his teeth removed and they gave him dentures and he really didn't want to jettison his teeth during the middle of a good rant. That would really ruin the moment, right? If you're like frustrated and whoop, like all your teeth fall out. So he would, he would clench his jaw to fuss. Uh, and now we're three generations deep, and I have been shaped, shaped by the past. The past makes our present. So when David's in the wilderness, his mind goes back to his own core memories. And what core memory sustains him? The power and the glory of the God that he's desperate to find right now. He looks back on the time when he experienced the power and the glory of that God. And with a parched throat and with weak limbs, he says, that's what I need. Verse 2 says, I looked on you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. Whatever was going on there at the temple, the tabernacle, whatever's going on there, David caught a glimpse of what God was really like. It was like that place on earth was overlapped with heaven. And he caught a glimpse of God's glory through the worship of God's people, and that sustained him in the wilderness. So friends, David was sustained in the present by the memories of worshiping with God's people in the past. That is why this moment matters. Friends, it's true. From the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you fall asleep at night, your life is worship. It is a response to how God has treated you, and you have the chance by your decisions to be honest, to be grateful, to give your life for the cause of Jesus, for all of that to be worship. But when we get together, something special happens. This matters. It's important. As normal people bring their lives into this room and turn their eyes and their hearts and their focus to God and say, everything you've given me means I am grateful. It's you, it's not me, it's all about you, it's all always about you, and that's the source of my joy. 
gathering together with God's people in the moment is what sustains us in the wilderness. It's what sustained David. And that memory triggered a flood of other memories. He's like Lloyd Christmas. Once he gets started, he can't stop. Verses three and four. That joke was for two people. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. That word, the steadfast love of God, steadfast, steady. It's one of the things that in the story of the Bible, it's like this a facet in the diamond that, that gets light shined on it and it reflects that light over and over again. It's repeated all the time. The concept is really important. When you study the story of God's like working in his people, this word steadfast love comes up. It's a big dog Hebrew word, hesed, which I mispronounced. And Sally Lloyd-Jones in her absolutely magnificent children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, sums up hesed, God's steadfast love like this. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Think about this. This is the love of God that when he was complete in himself and there was nothing else, it was that love that caused him to choose to form a good world and choose to create humanity to experience that love and extend it to others. This is the same love of God that made food, David's hungry, that made food not only necessary for your survival, but an opportunity for delight. You do realize that you could be sustained by going outside and holding your arms out in the sun like a plant. God could have made it that way. Photosynthesis. But no, you get to go eat chicken supremes and honey mustard and good coffee or whatever you gluten-free people eat, I don't know. That's a choice God made. It's his love for you. This is the same love of God that responded to the sin of the first man and woman by running toward them in provision rather than running away from their filth and their guilt. It's the same love of God that in the story of the Bible shows how God repeats that same crazy love again and again. Humanity breaks his heart and when they turn back to him, he steps in with open arms to rescue them and save the day. David says that that love is better than the sum of life itself. Every pleasure, every joy, every moment of warmth, not this warmth in this room right now, but warmth and peace, it's all like a little candle. It's all like a kid's flashlight compared to the power of the sun when you hold it up to this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. And in the desert, in the desert, with cracked lips, David erupts into praise. And in the desert, with weak and shaking limbs, he lifts his hands to God in gratitude and worship. His song of praise is set to the tune of a growling stomach. And the worship just, just doesn't stop. Verses five through seven, he just keeps going. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Remember back in verse one where David connected his physical thirst to this spiritual reality of needing God? He's doing the same thing now, but he's flipped it on its head. He's done it in reverse. 
He says that remembering God, dwelling on the goodness of God, expressing gratitude for God's presence and provision, they count as a feast to be savored. When I read this the first time, I missed it. I thought he was saying that I'm hungry now, but one day I'm gonna be full. I'm gonna have a feast one day and I'll be all right then, so I'll just hang on. But that's not what it says. Verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Okay, cool, so there's a feast, I get that. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The feast isn't a feast. The feast is the goodness of God. You've been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And here I'm reminded of another moment from the story of God in the Bible. It's from Acts 16. Acts 16, verses 16 through 33, tells the story of two guys, Paul and Silas. They're going around spreading the good news that Jesus is the real king and you can join his family and kingdom by giving your allegiance to him. They get to this town called Philippi and there's a girl there that is, is suffering, oppressed by demons. And one of the things that the, the demon does in her that causes her suffering is that she's able to predict the future, maybe. Something bad's going on but she's a slave. And so her owners are hiring her out as a fortune teller and profiting off of her suffering because Jesus loves us. Paul and Silas speak to her. They free her from the oppression of, of this demonic spirit that is ruining her life. And when the slave owners find out that their fortune teller is now a dud, here's what happens. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disrupting our city. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Helping people? I don't, I don't know. They're, they're liars. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So there they are, stripped naked, beaten to a bloody pulp, and locked up in the inner part of the prison where even if they could scream, nobody who could help would even hear. And they're locked up so tight that they can't move, they can't get up and go to the bathroom. Nobody's bringing them a cup of water. This moment is the definition of desperate, of suffering and misery. And yet here's what we find. This is verse 25. This blows my mind. If this wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it even happened. Verse 25. At about midnight, oh, remember when David was saying in the watches of the night, I set a feast? Anyhow, midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, experiencing that feast to the tune of their own growling stomachs. The story gets even crazier from there. But what I want to show you now is that David's move to experience that feast of worship isn't just a one-time thing. It's actually the heart posture of all of those who can see through the haze of the moment to what's really true, that if you have the living God, you have everything. And if you have everything but God, you've got nothing at all. And so David sums the whole thing up back in verse 8 of Psalm 63. Listen to this. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. This verse always reminds me of the first time I got to take each of my kids to the beach and go out past where the waves break. 
You know, they've had fun playing in the shallow water where they can like go up to their ankles and when a wave comes, run away. But maybe they get brave enough to ask or you offer and you like take them into your arms and you walk out into the waves. And then next thing you know, you're like jumping the, the like rollers with them. I've gotten to do it with three kids and I got one more that I'll have a first time with. I can't wait. But I think I have scars on me <laughs> from those moments when their little baby talons just latch into your shoulder and they're having fun, but they're also scared. From our perspective, it might seem like that's what life is like, that our allegiance to Jesus is just us digging our claws into him for all that we're worth because the power of the moment is really strong and makes us want to go crazy or throw in the towel. My soul, it clings to you, God. I am holding on for everything I'm worth. But that second line of the couplet tells us what's really going on. God, your right hand upholds me. Samuel, Selah, and Story were not safe in those rollers because they were holding on tight. They were safe because I was holding on tight. It's the same thing for us. We're safe and we're sustained through our circumstances, not by the power of our clinging, but by the strength of God's loving embrace. So family, map out God's goodness to you. Plot out the core memories of his presence and provision for you in the past. All of that goodness adds up to the ingredients of a feast of peace and joy that you can savor right now, regardless of the quality of your table settings. He is the gift and he is the giver. And family, friends, if you're here today and your heart's allegiance belongs to somebody or something other than Jesus, then consider the offer that he's making to you now. What was true for David back then can be true for you now. We're in the same story as he was. We're just in a different chapter. Look what he's offering you. This is on the screen. Jesus reveals to us what God is really like. You can know what the real God is like by getting to know Jesus. Jesus lived a life that perfectly embodied the love for God and love for others that's expected of us, and he did it on our behalf. He gives us right standing with God as a gift, as a present. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead as proof that he's going to do the same for everybody who belongs to him. Jesus promised that his very spirit would be with us and guide us, everybody who belongs to him. And Jesus promised to take care of his people till the very end. That's the offer. That's the deep reason why we can endure any present circumstance. We look back at what he's done for us, the way he's pulled through, and it means we can hang on now. But God in his goodness doesn't just leave us with that as a deep reason why. The whole thing ends saying that we don't have to just look back. We get to look forward to. That's the last thing I want you to see is we got to look forward to the hope of the future. Verse 11 says, the king will rejoice in God. Like I get that, like David's the king and he's the one who's writing the psalm. He's going to have a party in God. Like the way God takes care of him is going to bring him joy. And then the circle of joy expands. All who swear by him shall exult. That's, mm, that's not how we talk in Rollsville, so here's the breakdown of that. All who swear by God are those who see God as their litmus test for what is good and bad, right and wrong, true and untrue. So when you swear, that's when you're like promising that something is real. So these are the ones who see God as the measuring stick for what is true and false and right and wrong. Those people are gonna join the king at the party, but those who lie, those who have some other measuring stick for good, bad, right, wrong, they're gonna be hushed up. They're not gonna make it. So in our closing now, there's this uh, psychologist 
named Lev Vygotsky, which I've practiced saying a lot. Lev Vygotsky. He did this like amazing experiment um, where he took a group of kids and he asked them to do the impossible. He asked this group of kids to stand still. Just stand there. And you can guess how it went. <laughs> he took another group of kids and he asked them to remember a long list of random food items. You can guess how that went. But then Lev came back and he repeated the experiment and he told the kids, hey, I need you to stand really still, straight back, hands at your side, don't move. Because we're playing soldiers and you guys are on guard duty. You're the guards in the game. And so I need you to stand really still. And they just stood there. They didn't move. They didn't get bored. They didn't wander off. The kids with the list of food, he said, hey, I've got a long list of food that I need you to remember because we're going to play shopping. We're going to go to the grocery store in a minute and we're going to pick out pretend food. And every one of those kids was able to keep this list of thing in, things in their mind because they had power to their, their suffering. <laughs> the suffering of standing still was given meaning when it was for guard duty. And the suffering of remembering a list of food was given meaning when it was for the game of playing groceries. And family, we have been given a reason to endure. There's a reason to stand still. There's a reason to remember. Let me recontextualize that for you. There's a reason to tell your temptations no. There's a reason to tell Jesus yes. And we look forward to that. By the way, this is the exact same thing that our very king did. Hebrews 12, 2 through 3 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the shame and pain of the cross. He had a deep reason why he endured, and you were a big part of it. So as we end our time together, as we think about the offer Jesus has made to us, as we marvel at his goodness, we're going to look at what he's promised us, and we're just going to let it hang in the air what we look forward to. There's a vision that God's prophet Isaiah saw. It's from Isaiah chapter 25. Notice how it starts like Psalm 63. I'm not saying there's like a direct connection, but I think that when you catch the tune of what God's up to in the world, sometimes it rhymes. Check this out. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and true. Look at him looking back. And now he looks forward. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread out over all nations. He, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God himself will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Jesus, you're the reason why. You're the reason why we can endure right now. The chaos and craziness is not is not enough to make us go crazy or give up. Because we've seen what you've done for us in the past. We can't 
forget how good you've been to us. You've sustained us to this very moment. So sustain us now. We can't wait for the day when you set that table for your people. We can't wait for the day when the feast of worship becomes an actual feast in your presence. Lord, we can't wait for the day when death is just a bad memory. Thank you for making that our reality. Because of all of that, we love you. Amen.